We're going to start a new sermon series this, uh, this week, and it's going to go through the entire summer. And, and let me begin with a story that you might think has absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing this morning. And that's okay. That's my intent. So uh, about, it was about six or seven years ago. Um, I was in the last church I was serving, uh, and uh, they had been complaining for a long time about, the sound guys had been complaining a long time that their battery tester didn't work. Week after week, I'd hear, well, the battery tester doesn't work, and they'd grumble about it. It became a real issue, and I was like, why don't we just go buy a new one? I mean, they're not that expensive. So I went to Radio Shack uh, one week, and I decided to buy a new battery tester for all of $15 or something like that. And, and I go to the counter, and, and at this stage of life, this matters to the story. I'm in my early 30s, um, and I'm standing there behind, uh, in front of the counter, and when you go to check out, if you've never purchased anything for a tax-exempt organization, you don't know the fun that you're missing out on, where you hand them the little tax-exempt number and they figure out the system and how to enter in that number. So we're going through that process. Uh, what's the organization? What's the number? Where does the number go in the computer? They're figuring all that out. And, and the guy behind the counter couldn't have been more than 20. And he's standing there. He's about a foot shorter than me, it felt like, and, and a, a small frame guy. And so I'm standing there. Uh, he's punching in the, the information. Okay, so what's the name of the church? Types that in. What's your role at the church? And I said, I'm an associate pastor. And he said, he looks up at me and he goes, what? You're too young to be a pastor. Which happens quite often, but it was Radio Shack of all places, which is what really threw me that this little guy is like, you're too young to be a pastor. And then, just to add the fun to it all, his co-worker is standing off to the side, who's three times the size of both of us with a big beard, and he messes with his co-worker. He's like, well, am I too young to be a pastor? It was just this comical moment of them ribbing each other and trying to figure out... But, but here's the thing. I get this comment a lot, and sometimes what comes with it is uh, the, the comment of, oh, you're wise beyond your years, indicating perhaps they didn't expect that in the beginning, right? There are a lot of assumptions made. And so what, what I've discovered, and this happens not just in these occasions, but what you see is not always what you get in life. Isn't that the case in so many areas? What you see is not what you get. What they saw was not what they got in my case. And we're going to spend the summer looking at the character of King Saul and those around him, specifically in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to take the whole summer to do that, and I think it's going to be time well spent to, to dig in to one Old Testament book and, and work through it together and see these characters at play. And if you're going to be gone... That's fine. It's summer. Everything is always online. You can tune in live. We have people in right now. Welcome. And you can always see it later that week uh, on our website and on our YouTube path, uh, channel. But what we'll find, if we're going to use these sort of common expressions, you pay for what you get. If you think of the book of First Samuel, uh, you, you kind of have a combination of sort of common expressions we could put to it. And somewhere in the middle, you find First Samuel. Uh, you could say First Samuel, and especially King Saul, is a case of you pay for what you get in many ways. Uh, they're, they're asking for one thing, but it's really not what God wants for them. And, and they end up paying the price for it, for asking for this. You also get in Samuel a sense of don't judge a book by its cover. What they think they're getting is not actually what they get in King Saul. And in many ways, it goes back to where we started. What you see is not always what you get. Or perhaps we could say, what you desire is not what you actually should want sometimes. And that's what they're looking for in this king. And so we'll, we'll get to Saul. We're not even going to touch Saul today, but we're going to get to him. 
But let's enter into the world of 1 Samuel a little bit and understand something about uh, what we're doing here. The structure of 1 Samuel, it is structured in a way that makes sense. Um, I have posted, and there's an image that you can see here of uh, kind of some of the characters in 1 Samuel. I think that should come up here. Um, it's squinty. It's an eye chart for you. They're on the wall in the church, and this is also on our website. This is from the Bible Project. It's a really well-done video, and there's a poster that accompanies it that gives you the structure of 1 Samuel. If you're interested, watch it. About eight minutes long. Well worth your time. The structure of 1 Samuel just begs us to enter in and to make judgment calls as we do it. To make judgment calls on who these characters are that we run into. Hannah, who we'll run into today. Samuel, her son, who changes the course of everything, really. Uh, Eli, Saul, David. And where we're called upon to ask some important questions of these characters as we enter in. You're drawn in by the very structure of the thing. Where we're drawn in to ask things like, what is God's intent and desire for his people, Israel? What does he actually want from them? They live in a time when it seems hard to navigate that for the people. And then more importantly, not just what does God want, who's doing it? Who's following through? Who is actually righteous and faithful in these difficult times? We're, we're kind of called upon to ask those sorts of important questions. And furthermore, the structure pulls you into the text and you don't end up just asking, okay, is Saul righteous? Good question. But you're drawn into these stories in such a way that you're supposed to ask, what about me? Am I righteous? How do I line up compared to the decisions these people are making? What kind of decisions would I make in these cases? As we're considering then the context, the the culture that we're walking into, uh, the, the history of Israel up to this point in the shortest terms possible, uh, the people have been rescued from the exodus. They, they've been uh, taken out of Egypt, out of uh, 400 plus years of slavery as a people. They ended up wandering in the desert. God gave them the law in that time, the Ten Commandments, and then some. And then they wander a little bit more. They enter the promised land. And as they enter the land, that's when, when these 12 tribes uh, are, are given their different allotments of land. But it's actually a time of chaos, even though they have these allotments of land. Because they're ruled by judges. The judges do help them, but the people often fall away from what the judges uh, call them to. And then they get into trouble. They get captured by a people or something happens. It's catastrophic. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge, rescues them, and rules them for a while. And they kind of keep the path going, and then they fall again. And it's this big cycle, the cycle of the judges is what we know it as. These are tribes, and what you see in Samuel is these people becoming relatively unified over the course of of asking for a king. For better or worse, that's what happens. And we should recognize, sometimes we look at this character of King Saul that we're going to look at over the weeks, and, and the people asked for a king. We want a king like everybody else has. That's what they're looking for. That wasn't out of the the vision of God's plan for Israel. If you look at Deuteronomy uh, 17, starting at verse 14, I won't read it for you. You can read it later. Deuteronomy 17, starting at 14, it talks about when you enter the land, I will set up a king. But the people are pushing the issue before it's time. That's the problem in setting up a king. And so God ends up giving them what they want, even though it's not what they should have yet. And so as we look at this, this time of chaos that they're living in, 
this time when there's sort of no centralized uh, uh, direction that they're looking. There's no temple built. There's a tabernacle, but they're going to individual places to do their sacrifices, as we see in the text today. We have to face the fact that these are an imperfect people with imperfect rulers. And in so many ways, it points back to us. If we bring ourselves into the text, we're pretty imperfect too, aren't we? with imperfect rulers. And, and uh, we live in a time when, when we don't want to ever be judgmental. That's one of the mortal sins, right? And, and in, in not being judgmental of anybody else or not being critical of anything else, sometimes we'll, we'll try and pass off sin in the process to try and make ourselves either seem like, well, you know, you may call me a sinner, but you are too. So that cancels it out, right? Or I'm perfect. I'm good enough the way I am. I don't have to improve anything. But we're drawn into this text and we have to recognize that none of us are perfect. And we get these kings who are not perfect. But they, they, God even uses them to show us that we have a true king now who is. A true king now whose authority we're called to live under. We're on that side of history where we can recognize what God was doing and setting up. We have the true king in Jesus who calls us into life in his kingdom. King Saul was a relative failure in many ways. King David was a shadow of what was to come, the deposit of the promise. But now we know what we're called to. We're called to life under the kingship of Jesus Christ, our true ruler. That's where this all goes. So there's the big picture. There's entering into the world of where we're going this summer. Now let's dig into Hannah's story a little bit here. We're going to read uh, in a moment from 1 Samuel 1, starting at verse 21, but we've got one other passage that will come up before that. So if you're following along, you can just stay with 1 Samuel. We'll read a few passages from that. But we heard this morning the backstory in that first chapter. We heard that Hannah is married to a guy named Elkanah, and he appears to be trying to do right. He appears to try to be a righteous person who's, who's trying to be faithful. Uh, obviously, there are some things that might, we might wonder about. And so I want to point out a couple things about uh, one thing about him and one thing about Hannah. We can recognize that he's married to two women. He loves Hannah, it says. Penina, she's the one who had children. It doesn't say anything about his love for her. Interesting. Uh, he loved Hannah though. And we can understand then at the end of the book of Judges, because this is the day they're living in, we, we can get the chaos of the world they're living in. In those days, Israel had no king, we're told, and everyone did as they saw fit. So it's, it's a time of uncertainty on what is right and wrong for people. And I would suggest to you that when it comes to this issue of polygamy, since we're thrust right into it right here at the beginning of First Samuel, uh, I've pointed out before I hold what's what we considered a traditional view of marriage. Um, and I don't want to talk about all the issues with that today, but I'm always happy to talk, if you want, about some of those issues, because some of those are hot-button issues right now. But when it comes to polygamy, uh, I understand this put against God's intent for man, woman, one, and one. That's how I understand this, and polygamy was not God's intent. In fact, if you look at every example in Scripture, this does not make a slam-dunk case, I'll tell you that. But if you look at every example of polygamy in Scripture, it always seems to cause more problems than solutions, right? It always seems to breed things like playing favorites, rivalry, envy, and even worse, idolatry in too many cases. It doesn't seem to be the plan. So it is a time of, of relative difficulty on what is right and wrong. Obviously, he's trying to do some things right, but he's got this issue here. 
The question we might ask is why do it? Why have more than one wife then in this period of time? Well, some people did it. The great example of, of forming alliances by marriage is Solomon, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's ill-advised, by the way. That's just not smart. But they were largely to make alliances with other people, treaties, that kind of thing, to make sure that they didn't fight against each other. Well, you're married to one of my daughters, or you're married to six of my daughters, possibly, in the case of Solomon. Who knows? One reason that people might do it is if you live in an agrarian society or you're working on the farm, you have more workers. Of course, it's a scalable problem, too. You also have more mouths to feed. So you have more people to wash the dishes, but you have more dishes. So, but that might be one reason people would do it, and that's one reason it still happens in parts of the world today, actually, uh, that they justify it that way. In this case, this is a, it appears that it's a, it's a third issue that appears to be at play that the text points us to. This is a day when there's nothing uh, known as in vitro fertilization or, or any of those other mechanisms to have a child when it's very difficult. Hannah's womb is closed. The way that you do it in the ancient world is you move on and you bring somebody else into the picture. You marry somebody else. And, and they're working with an ancient understanding of the birds and the bees, by the way, uh, which basically was a literal bun in the oven situation, okay? So uh, to, to keep this at, at, at basic level of a family show, um, they, the man was basically can, had the bun and the woman was the oven. That's how they understood it, all right? That, that the woman, he just needed a receptacle to put the bun so it would grow. That's how they justify this kind of thing. You can enjoy that later. Now, um, Hannah, her womb was closed, it says. And one of the things, that, a couple of things that we can't uh, overstate, I think, we can't, we can't say enough about is that in the ancient world, you needed to have an heir. You need to have somebody who was going to inherit. That was crucial. And in the ancient world, especially if you were married, having, being able to produce an heir, and it was always considered the woman's issue, even we understand the science now, it was always considered the woman's issue. You can understand I just talked about why that would be. So she's unable to produce. That's a shame-inducing state. It just today, it brings us great heartache, just as it did then. But it was supremely elevated in that society because this is one of the stated things she's supposed to be able to do, and she can't do it. And she feels awful about it. So much so that, that even when she gets the double portion, she won't eat. She's distraught over this whole thing. And it becomes a really difficult situation all around, doesn't it? As we look at this total picture, as we look at the world they live in and what's going on, Elkanah is trying to be righteous. Hannah is seeking God. They live in a time when morality, frankly, is fairly murky. And it's cloudy what right and wrong is. But let's just point out, even when we live in times when it's hard to decipher what right and wrong are, you and I are still responsible for our own actions. They're still responsible in the Old Testament for their own actions. And so what's remarkable in this setting is that Hannah becomes a bright light. She will be the key in bringing forth God's plan and promise to his people in spite of their shortcomings. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Difficult times, and yet here comes the brightness. Here comes the light in the midst of that. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel 1, 21-23. We've already heard the backstory, and I'll reference a little bit of that again. It says, When her husband Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, 
Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. There are some things that are unclear in the text and some things that are clear. Uh, we, you read in First Samuel 1, kind of those first 20 verses, that uh, Hannah took a vow. We don't read that Elkanah took a vow. So some scholars look at this and they wonder if this is a, an affirmation on Elkanah's part of her vow. That's what needed to happen uh, in the ancient world of Israel. Uh, if a wife took a vow, she still needed the approval of her husband or he needed to affirm it in some way. Uh, some scholars wonder if that's happening. We, we just don't know the fullness of the vow. Uh, but at any rate, what we can tell is here's the answer to the prayer Hannah's been praying. Finally, this, this fulfillment has come. Hannah was praying and praying for a child to be born. She wept for a child. She's bearing out her soul, if you remember hearing that passage of Scripture earlier. And when she went to Shiloh, where they presented their offerings and their sacrifice, she's standing there uh, near Eli the priest. And Eli, she's praying. She is, is moving her mouth, but nothing's coming out. So much is she bearing out her soul to the Lord that Eli thinks she's drunk. Right? He thinks her righteousness or her faithfulness is drunkenness. Isn't that interesting? Even in murky times, I think sometimes what's right looks like it's wrong. Sometimes it's presented that way. What's right looks like it's wrong in this case. And of course, at this, in this area, there were people who were not just worshiping God, but other gods too, because everybody did as they saw fit. Some of that involved drunkenness. It's no wonder then that Eli probably saw this from time to time. People went to one altar to another. Hey, they might as well go to another god. We're already out here and doing this. So he thinks she's drunk. But what's remarkable is as you look at, at Hannah and what she does and how she prays and, and how she bears her soul to the Lord, I think it's remarkable. Something we can learn is that Hannah prays with expectation. And I wonder if I do the same. I wonder if I pray with such expectation. I put the kids to bed at night. I pray with them. And I got to tell you, when I do it, I pray with the younger two, especially uh, the older ones, easy. The younger two, uh, when I pray with them, sometimes it's just a fight to the finish, right? Like, we, you know, somebody's going to climb over you in the middle of the prayer, try and run away, or something's going to happen during that prayer. So you keep it short. That's what you're trying to do and just get through it. God, please help them fall asleep and fast and for a long time. Amen. That kind of thing, right? And, and we pray at meals. And when we pray at meals, uh, you know, sometimes we'll pray, bless the food in the hands of prepared. These are all good things we're, we're supposed to pray. And, and often at, at meetings and different things, we'll say, let me just say a quick prayer and then we can get on to business, right? Well, sometimes we don't pray with expectation. Like God's really going to do something. We're, we're just moving through the motions. Okay, God, I know my routine and I'm going to thank you for the routine. That's a good thing. But that's all we end up doing rather than praying, believing that God's going to do something. And, and even further, praying through life's circumstances as if God's going to do something in the good and the bad times that's going to affect us. And I think it's interesting. What we need to look for is not simply the prayer itself, but the result we're looking for, which is heart alignment with God. That's what we should be looking for in prayer. Her womb was closed. She prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed for God to answer. And when God answers, her heart is actually focused on returning to the Lord the gift that she's been blessed with. 
Right? You can imagine, you can, you can get a sense of the transition that's going on, the distress that, that we're brought into, that she wants a child. She wants a child to be like Penina, to be like all other women, somebody who can then work in the home and be part of the home. But when finally the prayer comes, her heart is in a different place on where that child is going to do and be and exist. What kind of a blessing God has given her. Do I expect, when I pray, God to change me? Not just to fulfill the answer to the, the thing I asked, but to change my heart by the very nature of prayer and coming to God in prayer and bearing out my soul to God. Do I pray with that in mind? Hannah prays, and she's changed in the process. And what, what's interesting is the bigger picture comes into view. As, as you see, of course, Samuel expound. You could kind of put this out on, on everybody else. They had a desire to have a king. Hannah had a desire to have a child like everybody else. They had a desire to have a king like everybody else. Apparently, God had different plans for how to enact all of these things. The people weren't ready to have a king. Hannah wasn't quite ready, apparently, for what God had in store for this child. But by the time the child comes, she's ready. The people, when they're asking for a king, they're not ready. And God says, I'm going to give it to you, but you're not going to like the result. I don't want you to have a king just to be like the Joneses and those next door. I want you to have a king because you're ready to be ruled by a king that I've chosen. There's a bigger picture here. And Samuel, this child born, ends up entering into that bigger picture to bring forth God's plan. But her heart is changed in the process. Her heart aligns more with the heart of God because of the prayers. The second thing, well, let's go on with the, the, the verse here uh, from 24 to 28. Here she brings the boy to Eli. It says, After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for this, that his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So we need to pray, I think, expecting that God's going to do something, not just answer the prayer, but do something inside of us to pull our heart closer to his heart. But when you pray, I think Hannah demonstrates this, be ready for God to show up. I expect that that's going to happen too, that God's actually going to come and be with you. Hannah's life circumstances weren't ideal. They weren't terrible, but they weren't ideal. And your life circumstances, my life circumstances, we may have moments where just things aren't ideal. They're not great. They're not what we wanted. Family relationships aren't what we want. Work isn't what we want. Uh, all kinds of things can be off in our lives. And sometimes we get to those points and we ask the question, and this gets asked an awful lot right now, where is God in difficult times? Where is God when things are so off? When things aren't working right? When it seems like everything's just falling apart, where is God? And I was thinking of some biblical examples this week, and I thought of someone like Gideon. If he asked that question, God, where are you in the difficult times? We're living in caves in the days of the judges. He's threshing basically in a cave, which doesn't work, by the way. They're so scared and terrified 
that they're in hiding and God comes to Gideon and Gideon's response is, who, me? Right? You want me? I'm hiding in a cave, God. Or uh, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and people have the sword strapped to their side because they're being antagonized the whole time. Where is God when things are difficult? But they've been called to do the task. Or the Apostle Paul. He didn't have it too bad, actually, uh, as far as oppression before he converted to Christ. But then he's presenting the good news. And what? That's when all the shipwrecks happen and the snake bites happen and the beatings and the stonings happen. And he wouldn't take it back for a minute, would he? We could, they could all ask this question. Where is God in difficult times? In fact, if you think about it, isn't the whole Bible a testament to answering that question? When things look down, that God is there. God shows up. Where is God in difficult times? He's there. And it's really our own sense of selfishness and sinfulness that tend to misalign us off of that course. And I'm reminded uh, of a story that I've told numerous times, and I like it so much I'll tell it again, which is the simple anecdote of the Irishman who discovered a stove that cut his heating bill in half. So he bought two, so he'd never have to pay his heating bill again. And... We're like that sometimes with God. God hands out blessing after blessing after blessing to us, and we think, I can improve on this. I can do better than God can with what I'm being given. We're handed blessing after blessing, even in difficult times sometimes. Hannah's response to God and to God's work, I think, reveals her heart and how it's moved in the process of her prayer. And it also turns out it reveals Israel's hope, what God is going to do. And so when she actually does pray in response to all this, this is 1 Samuel 2. I'll just read a couple of verses of it. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. That imagery, by the way, the horn is a sign of strength. Imagine a, a, a goat or a ram raising its horn high, proud, I am a victor. That's the idea. God raises their head up. That's the image. For my mouth boasts over my enemies, and I delight in your deliverance. Literally, your salvation. You plucked me from the evil that was around and saved me from that, from danger. There is no one like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And go to verse 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. She's revealing where God is taking things and what God has done in her own life. And as we look at Hannah, we can recognize that her desire was intense for a child but likely self-focused in the beginning. Yet when it finally comes to fruition, it impacts the direction of an entire people. And frankly, you and me, when it comes down to it. Her heart grew, and you notice the period of time when her heart grew is when it was dry, when it was difficult. I'm not saying that we should go around saying, God, I, I hope for really painful, difficult times, but we should pray in those times, God, teach me. God, help me grow in these times. Help me feel your presence and align my heart even when things are toughest. Because her faith in God grew even when things were dry and difficult. And when God delivered, you notice she was different than when she started. Something had changed inside of her. 
And when God came through, she willingly had vowed to give that which was most precious, the biggest blessing she had received through all of this, her son. It got me thinking as we close out. I really am closing out here. Uh, I was thinking about conversations I've had over the years with people who who ask good questions, giving questions. Uh, I've had plenty of these, so I'm compressing a few. Uh, People ask things like, should I tithe on tax returns? Uh, Or should I tithe on student loans? I'm not going to answer these questions for you, by the way. Uh, Should I tithe on birthday money I receive or, or Christmas money if I get money for Christmas or something like that? Uh, do I have to give back in those cases? And if you think of something like birthday money or Christmas money, um, you know, those things where somebody's given and you did nothing to deserve it other than you had another year of life, which is good. That's an accomplishment. Um, it's amazing to me how possessive we get so immediately over something we didn't earn, isn't it? But I have to give some of this? Or I should give some of this? Or, and I'm not saying yes or no to that. You can ask me later. I'll give you my thoughts on it. But we get so possessive, and I do too, very quickly, of things that I didn't earn that were given to me. That's mine now. Think of how much more Hannah could have been that way. That's mine now. And what does she do? She vows to hand him over to the Lord, understanding what a great blessing she's been given. So when you pray, let's learn from Hannah. Pray with expectation. Expect that something's going to happen. Be prepared for God actually to show up, and be ready to be changed when we go before God in prayer. Let's pray together now. Father, by your grace, we're here today. By your grace, we'll go. It is the blessing of life that we get to enjoy here. And we know that many times we turn inward and and we don't recognize the fullness of your blessing to us. Father, this morning, help us recognize more and more each of those small ways and big ways that you've blessed us in this life. Help us not be possessive of things that belong to you which is all it is. Help our hearts to be open and ready for you to speak in us and work through us, to draw us into your presence and pull us closer to you, to have our hearts in sync with your heart, to beat with you, that we would do your will in all ways at all times. That when we do come to you in prayer, we would not hide parts of ourselves, again, being possessive, but put ourselves before you, that you would redeem us, transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and help us even in these imperfect times live under the rule of your king, even when everybody else around us isn't, so that we would draw others into your kingdom and they would see the blessing of your kingdom compared to the false promises of this world. Father, we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.